0: So I want to start with a story tonight. I'm going to read it because uh, I don't want to mess it up. It's from a book called The Life You've Always Wanted, and it's by a Christian pastor named John Ortberg, and here's what he writes. Um, he's telling the story about how he and his wife once traded in their old Volkswagen Beetle for their first piece of new furniture, which was a mauve sofa, and here's what he says. As they went into the furniture store, the man at the furniture store warned them not to get the mauve sofa when he found out they had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. But with naive optimism of young parenthood, they said, we know how to handle our children. Give us the mauve sofa. And from that moment on, everyone knew the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or think about the mauve sofa. It was like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. On every other chair in the house you may freely sit, but upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain. A red stain. A red jelly stain. So John's wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up her their three children in front of it. And this is my favorite part. Laura, (laughs) age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. (laughs) Do you see that children? She asked. That is a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it is not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory, the two-year-old, was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. John Ortberg knew they wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. He knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. He chair. He knew they wouldn't because he was the one who put the red jelly stain on the sofa, and he wasn't saying anything. I love that story for a lot of reasons. Its humor is one of the big ones. Uh, but I think it also <laughs> says something important about oftentimes the way that people in churches tend to interact and relate with one another. Um, the husband in the story, John, did not want anybody to know, especially his wife, that he had messed up and put a stain on the sofa. He was completely unwilling in that moment to show his real self, (laughs) to be authentic. Because he knew that when authenticity and honesty came out, he was going to face the wrath of his wife, who adored the mauve sofa. Now, that's a funny story, but it actually makes a very important and probably sad truth. Oftentimes, the way we've experienced church life, if we've been in the church for a while, is just that. You know that you can't really be yourself. You know that you can't really let the real you hang out. You know that you really have to, in some ways, wear a mask or a facade or to pretend that you have, at least to a large degree, you have it together. If you really want to make friends here, if you really want to be accepted here, if you really want to be a part of this place. If you've had an experience like that, uh, I'm sorry, as one who in many ways represents the Church of Jesus as a pastor, And I want you to know that that is antithetical to the Bible's view of what the church of Jesus should be. As we've been speaking and thinking, starting last week and continuing tonight, about what we want to be as a new church here in San Antonio, last week we talked about our main idea, the core value that drives the engine that is Christchurch, and that is that the gospel has the power to change everything. We talked about that a little bit last week. If you missed that sermon, it's online. Tonight, we want to continue to think about our vision and talk about how the gospel in particular changes us as a community. How it affects this thing, this gathering that we call the church. And at Christ Church, we want to hopefully, by God's grace, live out the biblical view of Christian community. A biblical ecclesiology, to use a big word. A biblical doctrine of the church. And the church, really, at the end of the day, is designed to be a community of worship and a community of love. And so Christ Church's second main core value that we're going to spend some time looking at tonight is this idea of loving community. We want our church to be a place where everyone is embraced with the love of the gospel. We want it to be a place where everyone is free to both be sinful, (laughs) recognize that we are, in a sense, sinners in need of God's grace... And free to experience the transformation that the gospel alone can bring through one another in community. And so we want to use these verses that I've read for you in Galatians to talk about this idea of of loving community. And really I want to focus on 526 through verse 5 or so of chapter 6. And there's two points in tonight's sermon as we think about this idea of loving community. Two things that Paul lays out here for us that describe what biblical church life should be and what we, by God's grace, are striving and working for. And those two points are this, okay? So first of all, loving community is a community of humble care, and secondly, loving community is a community of helpful support. Humble care... Helpful support. So we're going to look at those two points in succession uh, just for a few minutes here. So let's jump in. Beginning there in chapter 6, verse 1, we see, I think, that the church of Jesus, the community that Jesus gathers by his grace, is to be a community of humble care. Um, and you might not notice that there in verse 1 because what Paul says is if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, uh-oh, right? Right? You who are spiritual should restore him. Now, what he's getting at there is that the church of Jesus should be so radically committed to caring for one another, to loving one another, that they are willing to confront in gentle and loving ways one another's sin, transgression, brokenness, so that the people who are being confronted by the community in which, of which they're a part will eventually be restored. You see, what Paul's getting at here is what's oftentimes assumed throughout the New Testament. The Christian life is a life primarily lived together. Almost all of the, the pronouns that Paul's used throughout these last few chapters of Galatians are second-person plural or first-person plural. The Christian life is all about we, not me Christian growth takes place not just in your isolated individualistic life. Christian growth takes place when you as an individual engage in life with other individuals and form community. Paul's assuming all of that here and here he's sort of bringing it to the front and talking practically about what that might look like. And he says that one thing it looks like is that people living in community, people in a church together, are people who care enough about each other other to confront. Now, that's a, that's a strange and maybe scary thing for a lot of you, um, that loving community oftentimes involves confrontation. Uh, it involves confrontation for the purpose, however, of restoration. Look at the, what the text says again there. If anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. The person who is caught in a transgression should be loved enough by the community of which he is a part that those who are around him seek and pray and work for his or her restoration. And that will involve caring for them enough to have a discussion about the issue that is facing them. Notice he says that you who are spiritual should restore him. Now that word does not mean like the elders or the pastor or the person who has counseling training or crisis management training, you who are spiritual is every single Christian. Paul's just finished in chapter 5 of Galatians talking about um, how all Christians possess the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, you are to be involved in loving one another and caring for one another enough that you're willing to sometimes have difficult conversations for the purpose of restoration when those conversations are necessary. That word there, restore, is a medical term. And it literally refers in the original language, Greek, to the mending of a broken bone. And uh, it reminds me of a couple of years ago during the uh, NCAA basketball tournament. I know sports illustrations immediately, some of you chime out. Turn off, but uh, stick with me for just a minute. During the NCAA basketball tournament, um, I think it was like in the Elite Eight or the Final Four, towards the end of the tournament, Louisville was playing someone, and one of Louisville's players, a guy named Kevin Ware, I still remember his name, towards the end of the game was diving for a loose ball right by his team's bench, and he landed awkwardly on his left leg, and when he landed, his, his bone like just popped literally out of his skin on the court. And it was one of the worst, most grisly injuries I've ever seen. And I I consider myself a a connoisseur of sports watching. This was bad. This was a bad injury. And the fascinating thing about the injury um, was the way the team, who was right in front of him and saw it happen, responded. The coach, Rick Pitino, immediately just turned away and started crying, like weeping on the court, and the team, some of them like, got nauseous, and all of them were just oh, obviously disgusted at what they had seen, and in a sense, I think that illustrates for us the way we should respond to the sin, and the transgression, and the wickedness that we see springing up in our community life together, it should, it should disgust us, we should hate it, we should, we should cringe at the sight and the sound and the thought of those sins that tend to fester in our life together and prevent us from being the people that God is calling us to be. Loving community is a community that looks that sin in the face and seeks to bring restoration through the power of the gospel. That's what it means to, to care, oftentimes. We care enough to confront with love. But notice that I said, loving community is a community of humble, humble care. You know, oftentimes, some of us, it depends on our wiring, some of us love this idea of being able to confront. Not many of us, but some of us. We like the idea of being the morality police. You're probably like the firstborn in your family. That's me. And uh, I've always been sort of the one that likes to keep order and keep control. And, and you feel good right now. You're like, okay, I have the freedom to call people out on their issues. And then others of you hate the idea of confrontation in any way. You're like, can't we just, can we just ignore this and hope it will go away? <laughs> you know? Let's just keep the peace here. And I want to tell you that that neither of those are the way of the gospel. Neither of those are the way of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is a third way. We don't confront because we love to confront. We confront because we care and want to restore. We're willing to do it not because we love doing it itself. We're willing to do it because we care for restoration and for those in our community. And that can only happen when we're doing it with humility. Look at what Paul says there in the text. He says, if, you're caught in a, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And then what does he add? In a spirit of what? Gentleness or humility. And then the very next verse, very next words, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then down in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay. We can only really care for people when we care for people humbly, Paul is saying. In other words, the way that we show love for people in the community is not when, we, it's not when we see someone struggling or someone having a hard time or someone messing up or someone caught in some particular sin and we think of ourselves as coming down from above. We're descending to help them see the right path. That's just a fundamentally flawed way of looking at life together. A a more appropriate way of looking at it is as people coming, not down from above, but coming alongside those who are struggling, as people who know what it's like to fight and struggle with and experience life in a fallen, sinful world. Humility is what takes the edge off of the difficulty that comes with caring for one another. Gentleness is what is going to enable us to love one another well. Paul's saying the same thing up in 5.26. He says, let us not become conceited or arrogant. And then look at what he says. When that happens, we end up not building community that's loving, but provoking one another on the one hand or envying one another on the other. Now, that is... If I could say it, that is brilliant analysis of the way our hearts work. Paul's saying there, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that when we are conceited, when we're lacking in humility, we are totally and utterly self-focused. And that self-focus manifests itself, or it leads to one of two things. Either we think we're better than other people, And we tend to compare ourselves to them and think, you know what, if they would just get it right and get this act together and do this better and save here and tell their kids that, then they could maybe experience some growth and some change. And because we are always comparing ourselves to one another and we're always wanting to one-up others, and because we're really conceited, we tend to provoke, as Paul says there. We, We will sometimes in conversations, and usually in very subtle ways, provide ourselves with opportunities to give counsel, to give advice, to let people know how well we're doing, how wise we are, how much they need us. We're provocateurs, so to speak. It's utterly self-focused. We're completely obsessed with who we are and how we're doing. And that, Paul says, that lack of humility leads on the one hand to provoking one another. It, It ruptures community. But on the other hand, it can also lead to envying one another. You know, maybe Maybe you're being arrogant when you don't think you're as good as anybody else. Your self-loathing is in many ways just the other side of the coin of pride. Because self-loathing and pity is is still utterly self-focused. It's still just thinking about how you're doing in comparison with others. But rather than finding yourself doing better than most, you find yourself doing worse than most. And so rather than provoking them, you envy them. You ever find yourself in that situation? And I wish I could do this as well as that person does. I wish I was as disciplined as them. I wish that I was as good a parent as them. If I only had access to the resources that they have, then my life would be just as good as their life is. Those things you see are signs. Those things are signs not of humility. They are signs of conceit. They're signs of self-focus. They're signs of an innate selfishness. And what Paul's saying here is that that it's the gospel that brings us the sort of humility that will cut off both our provoking one another and our envying one another. Think about that with me for a minute. Only the gospel of Jesus really gives you the power to care for other people well. Because only the gospel of Jesus gives you the true view of yourself and of others and of God that's going to make you humble. What do I mean? The gospel says, and we talked about this last week, the gospel says that every one of us is so sinful, we are so fallen, we're so corrupt, that Jesus had to die on the cross for us. You are, in God's eyes, no better than anyone else on planet earth. It doesn't matter the language they speak, it doesn't matter the party they vote for, it doesn't matter the color of their skin. And if you believe that about yourself... If you believe that the gospel radically levels the playing field in humanity, then you can finally begin to see yourself rightly. You you begin to understand that I'm actually not any better than anyone else. I haven't done anything that's more deserving of God's favor than anyone else. In God's sight, I am as broken and as wicked as everyone else on planet earth. When you begin to think that way through faith in the gospel, your humility begins to spring up and your conceit and pride begin to go away. Okay, But the gospel also tells you, it doesn't just tell you that you're desperately wicked and in need of a savior, although it does do that. It also tells you that Jesus loves you and died on the cross and was raised from the dead for your sin to be paid for. And he did that completely apart of your deserving it. Jesus died for you and was raised from the life for you, not because you earned it in any way. You did 0% to earn God's favor that he has shown you in Jesus. And when you believe that and begin to experience the power of that, you begin to see other people in a different light too. You begin to see them as you see yourself, needy, broken, desperate, and yet loved by God and redeemed by God. You see, it's only believing what the gospel says about who we are and what the gospel says about God's grace to us that brings humility. And it's only humility that allows us to care for one another well. So you see how the power of the gospel is what produces in us the sort of loving community that is willing to care for one another, to bring about restoration, to care for one another enough to even be willing to deal with sin and confront it. So Paul is clearly laying out here the implications of this idea that the gospel changes everything. It changes everything in the sense that it makes us a people of loving community. And secondly, we're a people of loving community In the sense, not that we are just a community of humble care, but we're also, and Christ's church longs to be, a community of of helpful support. And verse 2 of chapter 6 is really what lays that out. This is just to me a beautiful verse. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Interestingly there, the way the law is fulfilled is by bearing one another's burdens. Very interesting side note. But I think this is great because really what Paul's saying here is that um, a loving community is a community that is deeply embedded in one another's lives. Now what is a burden? It's pretty easy, right? A burden is anything that you're too weak to carry by yourself. And I want you to notice something about that verse. Paul assumes that everyone in the church to which he is writing has burdens. He doesn't just say, find a few of the people that are really weak, or that are really spiritually immature, or that are really struggling here and bear their burdens. No, he says, bear one another's burdens, assuming that all of us have burdens. Every one of you right now in your life has something going on that you cannot handle on your own. And you in a very real way or are are living living like a true and full human redeemed by God's grace when you when you step into the shoes of another person and help them bear what they can't bear on their own. That's what community is. What burdens are you bearing right now? You know, whenever I think about this, I think about when we had our first kid. (laughs) When Nate was born, and we brought him home from the hospital, Uh, we were terrified. And uh, I thought, "This, this child is breathing, and... Marianne and I, I'm responsible for this child. Are you serious? You're going to let me go home with this child who's breathing? All right. So we get home, and Nate's sleeping right by us and gets to bed. And he had had some trouble with mucus in the hospital. And you have to get one of those syringes and suck it out. And we felt uncomfortable, we're nervous. And at like two in the morning, right, he wakes up choking, coughing. And Marianne and I, boom, jump out of bed. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Thankfully, Marianne's mom was there. We grabbed Nate, run, and burst into her room, the guest room at 2 in the morning. Help! He's choking. What do we do? We knew we were just way, way in over our heads. We could not handle it on our own. Parenting has done that for me, man. Parenting will quickly show you that you cannot handle multiple situations every day by yourself. Marriage will show you that as well. What in your life right now can you think of that you cannot handle? If you can't think of anything, you're deceiving yourself. If you can think of many things, welcome to Christian community. You see the point is the point is that we are to very practically and tangibly bear one another's burdens. We need one another to help learn to live life together. Understanding God's grace, believing God's grace. So a couple of things real practically about what that might mean for us. As we seek to apply this as a church, how do we practically seek to live these verses out? Bear one another's burdens, care for one another, love one another. Well, you should probably know by now if you've been around what I'm going to say. You need to get involved, first of all, in a small group, a missional community group. Is the way, the main way at Christ Church that you get to know one another and bear one another's burdens in life. Um, you know, it's already true at a church our size. We're a real small church just getting started. Sunday, when we gather together, is not enough for you to really develop intimate relationships and loving community. We come here, we worship. We hang out for 15 or so minutes afterwards. We say hi. We get to know what... We might even set up a a play date or a dinner together or something like that. But it is not enough for us to really love one another well enough to bear burdens, to care for one another, to restore one another. We must spend time in life together. And the way we've designed for that to happen, it's not the only way, but it's the way we've chosen to do it for now, is through our small group ministry. So we would love for you to get involved in one of those. Those are solely designed for you to get to know how you can love and care for others and how others can love and care for you. So that's one very practical little plug. But a couple of other things for us to think about before we finish, okay? Another way we bear one another's burdens is by being willing to let people know that you have them. You know, it, it goes back to the, the story that I read at the beginning, Right? Oftentimes, and this is oftentimes related to the experiences we've had in our past, we are unwilling to express neediness of any kind. Unwilling to let people in our community see cracks in our exterior. Unwilling for people to know that we really can't handle this aspect of life or can't figure this part out or really need help here. Listen, you are not going to be involved in the community in the way that God wants you to be involved unless you are willing to tell people how you need help. So don't come to church and say, I really want to get involved in community and I can't wait to get plugged in. And then you come and get plugged in and get involved in the community and people ask how you can pray for you how they can pray for you and they ask how they can help you. You say, I'm good, I'm fine, good to go. No, no big needs here. Pray for my great aunt Edna, who had a bunion removed last week. And that's it. Don't expect to grow in Christian community if you're unwilling to open your heart up at all for people, to let them know what you need, to let them know what your burdens are. It's another very practical thing that we can do to grow as loving community. Last thing, um, I think another way for us to bear one another's burdens in a very practical way as we seek to be a loving community is to get involved intentionally in friendships here. You know, let's just be honest. Not all of us are going to be best friends with one another, and that's fine. You know, people only have so many people in, that they can really have deep friendships with in life. But those people with whom they have deep friendships, oftentimes, those friendships are the result of some level of intentionality. You know, some level of, of being friends not just based on a common hobby or a common love of sports or movies or whatever, but... Deep friendships come about because you've intentionally sought to spend time with other people and let them know what's really going on in your life. We want Christchurch to be a place, we, I'm praying that Christ Church will be a place where those things, those kind of relationships and friendships are flourishing all over the place in ways that I don't even know about. Uh, that they're organically springing up. That people are expressing a, a willingness to spend time with one another yeah, having fun, yeah, enjoying dinner, yeah, watching a game, but also sharing their needs, sharing prayer, sharing desires, sharing life together. And when those things happen, the Bible says, literally on every page, growth begins to take place because God works in us through us. As Christ Church continues to develop, as Christ Church continues to seek to be the church God is calling us to be, and Uh, be a church that follows God's word. We want to be a place where loving community is taking place. What does that look like? It looks like being a community of humble care and a community of helpful support. Let's pray.